You're listening to Meritocracy. Hi, I'm Carrie Lee Merritt, and welcome to another episode of Meritocracy. Here in this fall season, I've got a special treat for you. In the six weeks leading up to the 2020 election, I'll be interviewing six of the top scholars, historians and economists, who will come to the show to share not only about their research, but really about how do we handle this election, the, probably the most important election in all of our lifetimes. How do we handle it? And, and more importantly even, how do we handle living in a post-Trump America? How do we reshape our world? How do we uh, emerge from this pandemic? How do we get out of COVID? How do we get out of COVID-induced unemployment? How do we rescue the economy? So these incredible scholars are here to share their knowledge. Now today, we have my friend and fellow Atlantan, Carol Anderson, Dr. Carol Anderson. She is the Charles Howard Chandler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University and author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Nation's Divide, which was a New York Times bestseller, obviously, and a Washington Post notable book of 2016, and a National Book Critics Circle Award winner. She's also the author of Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African American Struggle for Human Rights, 1944 through 1955. Uh, also, Bourgeois Radicals, the NAACP and the Struggle for Colonial Liberation, probably one that you all know as well, one person, no vote. How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, which has been long listed for the National Book Award and was a finalist for the Penn Galbraith Award in nonfiction. At the core of Dr. Anderson's research agenda is how policy is made and unmade, how racial inequality and racism affect that process and outcome, and how those who have taken the brunt of those laws, executive orders, and directives have worked to shape, counter, undermine, reframe, and when necessary, dismantle the legal and political edifice used to limit their rights and their humanity. So, I am so, so grateful to have Dr. Anderson here today. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Go ahead and hit subscribe to the YouTube channel or to the podcast you're listening to, and be sure to check out all the different websites that Dr. Anderson talks about in our interview. Thanks so much. I'm here today with Dr. Carol Anderson from Emory University. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Carrie Lee. Thank you. So before we really delve into all of the political stuff, I wanted to ask just a couple of questions about you, uh, about your background. Now, pretty much everything that you write is related to questions of civil rights and racial justice, which, of course, is the most pressing mo uh, issue in our times right now. Why are you so passionate about those topics and what really drew you to become a scholar of them? I, I'm an Army brat, and my father was career military. and for over 20 years. And when he got out of the military, he wanted to move to Columbus, Ohio, uh, where my brother, so my brother could go to Ohio State. I just, so when my dad moves us there, uh, my mother found a house on Oakland Park that she just loved. I mean, and after being on military bases, I mean, just, the, oh, oh, and the realtor said, that's not where you people live. And I'm like, well, who might you people be? <laughs> you people who have fought in World War II and in Korea? You people? Those you people? And so seeing how even from the very beginning, what my father and mother had done to sacrifice for this nation, 
didn't mean Jap doggone diddly when it came to their blackness, because that was all that this society saw and was willing to relegate them into places where you people could be. And I saw the way then our community was systematically treated um, so that my father is on the phone with the, the city over and over demanding the services that anybody else could just logically get by being, I mean, so it's seeing that kind of consistent, pervasive maltreatment. And then one more thing was, you know, my first book is called Eyes Off the Prize, The United Nations and the African-American Struggle for Human Rights. And part of what prompted that was that I saw in my neighborhood these hardworking folk, God-fearing folk, the folk who had the Trinity up on their mantles. You know, John Kennedy, Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Trinity on their mantles. These are the folks who have done everything they're supposed to do. And I watched as my neighborhood turned into the hood. And it had nothing to do with how hardworking or God-fearing and law-abiding these folks were. So it told me that there was something else happening in the system that could take down folks like that, that could take down communities like mine. And I went on a hunt to find it. And so you learned this at a very early age. It sounded like you were very tuned in. In our house, we always had books. We had newspapers. We were around the dinner table talking about what was happening in, in, in politics, what wasn't happening. <laughs> um, and so just getting that kind of immersion and that these things are bigger than yourself. And so you have to pay attention to what is happening. And then you have to engage. My father engaged. He got out of the military. He took up leadership um, in the neighborhood association, fighting for our community. I mean, so seeing engagement was also really important for me. Education, engagement, and justice. Right. I think so many people of my generation kind of realized that this summer, you know, taking our children to the different marches and everything. So it's, it's, I love hearing that. So you've told us a little bit about your background and how your personal struggles have prepared you for moments like this um, to really take on the, the incredible uh, weight of racism and fight against the white supremacy embedded in every system of our government. But how do you rebuild strength and hope and take care of yourself in a time, you know, as raw as this? Uh, so what is my personal care regime? So I just don't like a... <laughs> <laughs> One is that I recognize that my core, you, you know, it's like you never let folks touch your core. And my core is joy. And, and so I keep my sense of humor I, I, I see things, I'm like, and, and that allows me to, to maintain my humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also on the exercise bike in the morning with the New York Times puzzle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can just like be in another zone altogether. Before You're doing mind and body at the same time. Wow. <laughs> right. Before I then come out and, and, and really then engage with the, the work 
of identifying, narrating, analyzing the systems that have created this moment mm -hmm. and, and working with my students and with the broader public so that we have a sense of how we got here. Mm -hmm. So because that's going to help us figure out when we're rebuilding, what to do and what not to do and what the really end game is. Well, that's a, that's a, a great thing to think about. And I, I went to Embry University, as you know, as an undergraduate, and, and the university really did so much to open my eyes to all of this systemic racism. And I know you guys are, are a leader, not only to your students, but within the Atlanta community. And that's going to become so much more important in the, in the coming years. So thank you all for that. Next, I just want to ask you a few questions about the election, kind of your predictions and your advice, drawing upon your deep wealth of knowledge about specifically voter suppression and white supremacy and white rage, what kinds of scenarios are you expecting to see in the days and even weeks leading up to the election, especially on election day itself? You know, so there have been all of these questions, for instance, about, you know, when Trump loses, will he leave? I look at that as that's like a woman asking, will he hit me? Mm -hmm. Because the moment you have to ask that question, you know something is so fundamentally wrong. That abuse is tactic one. The fear of that abuse is tactic one. And so what we're seeing and what we know about abusers is that the closer you get to leaving, the more they lose their, their stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> right? And that they really begin to throw everything at you, to punish you mm -hmm. for, for saying, we're done. Mm -hmm. That's what I expect. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, did you ever think we would be having a conversation, for instance, about the Postal Service? Right but that you see a deliberate attempt to kneecap the Postal Service, mm -hmm. to stop the access to mail-in ballots for American citizens who are concerned about a pandemic mm -hmm. that this regime did not handle, despite all of the resources and all of the prior warnings and all of the playbooks on how to handle it that this regime had at its command, but it chose not to. And now that we are at nearly 190,000 dead or more, now that we're over 6 million who have contracted the disease in the United States alone, and people are rightly and justly concerned about their right to vote and their right to health. And that when you have a regime that doesn't believe you have the right to vote nor the right to help, and is angry that you recognize that that's what they think. They are determined to stay in power. So we can, A, expect everything. We can expect yeah. every shenanigan. We can expect every trick in the book, from lying about voter fraud to... to creating barriers to access to absentee ballots, to making it very difficult to vote in person or hazardous to vote in person. We can expect a lie about who won and we need the media. I'm gonna say this 
multiple times probably. We need the media to stop this horse race crap. This isn't about a horse race. And then when we get onto election night, we need not to be trying to call elections early <laughs> because we're going to have more mail-in ballots than ever before. Right. And, and that can change the game. And it takes time to count those ballots. And so we have to give democracy the time to count every ballot. So while there may be the tendency to kind of try to call this early based on who voted in person, in-person voting may not even be 50% of those who cast a ballot in this election because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've got to be cognizant of that and be aware of resisting calling the election early before mm -hmm. every vote is counted. Obviously, with the pandemic and, and the resulting evictions that are going on across the country, that, that then complicates voter suppression issues. Is there anything we can kind of do as a stopgap measure within the next few weeks, or are we kind of screwed at this point? I will never succumb to screwed. <laughs> um, so I believe that is working with organizations that are working with the homeless, mm -hmm. working with the organizations that are fighting these evictions, pairing up with organizations that are fighting for the right to vote. Mm -hmm. and, and it's that kind of coordination, working with folks who have been besieged by the coronavirus and then the economic collapse borne by this mismanagement of this regime mm -hmm. that have put these folks in a level of economic precarity that they did not deserve. Again, this is, I think about my neighborhood growing up where folks had done everything that mm -hmm. they were supposed to do. And deindustrialization just began to wipe them out. And that's how I see this moment, too. And you begin to think about how, for instance, in those states with voter IDs, where your ID has the address mm -hmm. and that has to be where you are, or there's some work that has to be done at the grassroots level on that. And I think about fair fight mm -hmm. uh, for that. Um, that. And you think about how, I think about how in South Dakota in the 2018 um, election, how that state legislature, well into like maybe September or so, uh, passed a law on voter ID that you had to have a physical address mm -hmm. on your right. Own. No PO box. No yeah. PO box, right? Mm -hmm. No PO box. Well, sixty percent of the indigenous people in mm -hmm. South Dakota lived on reservations and did not have a physical address, and so. Those organizations like the Native American Rights Fund and Four Directions, they got together and they started figuring out GPS codes and Google Maps and, and got a printer and started reprinting tribal IDs that had physical addresses on them. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of work that is going to take to, right. to make this democracy available and viable for all American citizens. I think that's a really important lesson uh, and one especially the younger generations are finally learning is how much has to take 
place at a grassroots or local level, that it's not just what's going on at the federal level, because none of this at the federal level, um, you know, would would even be there if it wasn't for the way that states and localities have failed us already. And especially, again, us both being in Georgia, us both being in the South, you see the generations of white supremacy, the denial of Medicaid expansion, and then how that just compounds the misery of poor and especially uh, people of color and black uh, Americans. Right. And, and, and I think about what it does to poor white folk too. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the thing that really has to be understood. Mm -hmm. These assaults are really about one innervating communities so that they don't have the capacity to fight back mm -hmm. about blocking access to the means of power, to the means of their electoral power, their, their political voices, to try to silence those, and to do divide and conquer. Because if these communities can be divided, then it means that they can be subjugated. Mm -hmm. And so it is an old playbook that we see playing out right now, this very day. Mm -hmm. And it does damage. When you think about, uh, and this is your work, where Georgia rates in terms mm -hmm. of health care, in terms of morbidity, mortality rates, education, uh, employment opportunities, income. I mean, it's just da -da 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 -da. and this is not by accident. All by design. All by design. Yeah. So you have obviously pushed several Democratic uh, politicians and candidates on, on issues that have made just huge impacts, I think, um, on American politics. So what are the key issues that you think Democratic politicians should really, really be focusing on and pushing in the last few weeks leading up to the election? I feel almost like, where do I begin? Yeah, right. <laughs> just pick one or two. I think absolutely dealing with the issue of controlling the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, we feel that in our lives in so many ways, in, in, in parents who are working from home while also being the, the working with their children in school, the pandemic, that there is a response. I think dealing with the fact that we have such income inequality, mm -hmm. that the people that we have said are essential workers, we have not treated them essentially. And when you get the Republicans in Congress arguing that an extra $600 would give people more than they make, and so it incentivizes them to not go to work. One, there's so much wrong with that argument. I mean, again, where do I begin? Part of the thing about people being able to stay home from work is that it allows us to flatten the curve of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we had done that, but two, the dollars, means more than they make working full-time, right. then you know you're not paying for. And that is a conversation we must have. We must have. We have got to raise the, the minimum wage. We have got to, so I expect to see that kind of conversation. And frankly, I expect to see a conversation, we need a conversation on, on criminal justice and social justice because as we keep seeing the state-sponsored violence just raining down on folk and, 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 and unconscionable excuses and, and allowing that state-sponsored violence to happen with impunity. And finally, the climate. You know, we, we have Arctic ice melting. What that's going to mean, if we can't handle a pandemic, 
Lord, what are we going to do about climate change? So mm -hmm. I expect, what I expect is to see a narrative that talks about human decency, compassion, empathy, integrity. And this is what this means in these policies as we embrace all of us mm -hmm. and, and all of us who are here. They need to get you on some speech writing teams. <laughs> they, seriously, they need they need to work on messaging because, I mean, you, you put it so beautifully. You've got to relate it to the moral and the ethical. You've got to relate it to that. People have got to feel it. Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, and so, and you think about, we have been in this toxic stew of, of greed and narcissism and violence and anger and hatred that to try to make it seem normative. Mm -hmm. um, but America has always operated on its aspirations. So we know that peace is there. Heck, my great-grandfather was enslaved. We know it is there. But where we see these struggles, the people's struggles, have consistently been on the plane of aspirations. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We've got to get back to that messaging, and I think we have kind of strayed from it. I, I appreciate you bringing that back. Let's shift gears a minute and talk about the fact that, you know, there's a scenario in which Biden does win, but Trump refuses to leave. And as you said, we should probably just expect that at this point and not talk about if, and instead talk about how to handle it then. So if that scenario happens or when it happens, what two or three strategies would you recommend average Americans to adopt? So in other words, what do you think is the best way for average citizens to kind of combat his possible refusal to leave office? When he refuses to leave, come January 20th, he doesn't have a choice. He's no longer the president of the United States. And he, we get to throw him out of our house. <laughs> and, and so we need to know that. So it's in that interim period where we really have to, because this is what abusers do. They will just take it all down. Mm -hmm. So it's going to require the American people engaging with their representatives, letting them know that this is not acceptable, and that we have to, so part of the way that Trump has been able to get away with so much stuff have been all of the enablers around him. We have to disenable the enablers. Mm -hmm. there that you go. is absolutely key. So the folks who, uh, you know, did not say, well, we know you burned through, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in campaign funds, and so you don't have a place to, like, hold uh, your convention. So what about the White House? Well, you needed folks around him to say no. Mm -hmm. That is illegal, and I'm not going to allow it to happen. But that didn't happen. After the election, that must happen. Mm -hmm. That must happen from the folks who are in the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate who have allowed him to get away with stuff, which means we have to lay in on those folks. Right. It means that we are making really clear to the pundit class mm -hmm. that we're still not doing the horse race thing or, ooh, we're, we're doing the, no, you need to get your act together and start packing up right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we can expect a whole series of pardons, probably horrific acts, because that is who he is. And so we need to have folks who are just patriots, mm -hmm. who 
who will do the work that needs to be done to protect the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And that means when an act is, an order is illegal, saying, no, Mr. President, we cannot do that. That's what's going to be absolutely essential. And, mm-hmm. and I think what we need to be prepared for, because what we have endured under this regime has been so horrific. There have been crimes against humanity mm-hmm. under this regime. We have got to hold these folks accountable. I saw the 2018 midterm as like the Battle of Stalingrad, mm-hmm. where it was that moment where it was really clear they weren't going to advance anymore. The tide, you know, the advance had stopped. And now we're getting ready to push them back to Berlin. Where we are right now is right after D-Day, and we're in that kind of battle of the bulge moment mm-hmm. uh, where, where you know, Hitler was throwing everything he had to try to stop the Allied forces from, from moving forward. And so when you think about the collapse of the economy, when you think about the pandemic, when you think about kneecapping the post office, all of these things are momedy. Um, that moment where the U.S. looked up and said, wait a minute, did the Nazis just shoot our soldiers who surrendered? <laughs> I'm sorry, did they just shoot our soldiers who surrendered? We're going to have a Nuremberg trial because we want the world to see. We have to document the depth of these atrocities so that it is clear we will not do this dance again. And that's where America has to be. We have to have not just a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We need to have, after this regime is over, full documentation and holding these folks accountable for the numerous laws that they have violated and the hell that they have rained down on the American people. Separating families Mm -hmm. and not documenting which children go with which parent? Mm Mm-mm. I, I'm 100% with you on that. And I, my, I'll add as a white woman, I just hope, I, I hope that white women committed these atrocities are held to the same standards as the men, because that's what I fear is that people like Ivanka and Kristen Nielsen and all these people who have put babies in cages yeah. will get off on, on being white women and, and, and get to go on living their lives after they've destroyed so many, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands Let's let's go on with that and and you know keep pretending that Trump is somehow gone that we are in a post-Trump America and you brought up how we're going to have to really try to repair our image internationally obviously and really that will be part of how we show good faith essentially to other countries. What do you think that we should be focusing on at home? Do we you know amend the Constitution? Do we need to go back and really? you know, look at the entire document of the Constitution and figure out what we need to change to update it? I don't think we need to do that. And, you know, and there's a movement on the right wing to have a whole new constitutional convention. And, mm-hmm. and I could just see them imp- trying to implement the three-fifths clause again. Right, oh. right. Um, Let's not go back there. Right. Senator Dick Durbin out of Illinois has proposed a constitutional amendment that just says, you know, basically, American citizens have the right to vote, period. So right now, our 15th Amendment says that the right to vote shall not be abridged on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So we have had states like Mississippi in 1890, 
going forward that have said, okay, so as long as we don't say race, <laughs> but we use a euphemism or a synonym for race, we can abridge the right to vote. And so they play that kind of chicanery. So a full unabridged right to vote, I think is absolutely essential. I think in the meantime, passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act mm -hmm. that, again, puts states on notice that discriminating against your voter population is unconstitutional and illegal, and we won't have it. Mm -hmm. Criminal justice reform. We're looking at qualified immunity. What we're seeing are too many police officers who are able to hop from police jurisdiction to police jurisdiction or say, stay in the same jurisdiction with a slew of complaints about abuse and killings, and, and they're untouchable? Uh-uh. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen is accountability. That is what has gone awry in this system, is accountability. And frankly, we need to rework that tax code, you know, that $1.579 whatever it was, giveaway that they did. We need a new national ethos that really understands it's about the we. Mm -hmm. It is about the viability of all of us. And when all of us are viable, the nation is strong. Our kids are in good schools regardless of zip code. The air we breathe and the water we drink is clean regardless of where we live. And none of this is hard. We've got to want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that given the, the hell that we're in right now and getting out of, that's why we got to turn out to vote like mm -hmm. nobody's business and hand-marked paper ballots as much as possible so that we can have a really, truly documented uh, recount. Being from Georgia, we, we both know what happens when you don't have that. And do you see the, the federal government hiring um, basically a, a cadre of people that would enforce these kind of new laws or protections? This isn't just about the feds. And this is why voting down ballot, those down ballot races are just so important. Actually having a real Department of Justice instead of the thing that Bill Barr turned it into. But I also see having a Senate that believes in the rule of law mm -hmm. and checks and balances and a house that does the same. But it's also what happens in our states. It's what happens when we're with our school boards. Mm -hmm. It's what happens with our zoning boards. It's what happens with our state legislatures who are making the laws that affect us most directly. I see the, the, the sense of a need to hold folks accountable and because part of what we're seeing right now, I just saw a stat that, that noticed the white-collar crime had never been a top priority, but its enforcement has gone down to, to just... Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's like the only way we see this, it, it kind of pops up, is this one of Trump's appointees mm -hmm. um, who's in a position who continues on, and, and folks are like, wait a minute, did he just like coerce or make clear that he wanted com campaign contributions to go <laughs> and that then they would cover it up by having the company, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is like the only time when we're seeing this, we need to have that kind of real enforcement. Think about it. 
Paul Manafort went 40 years, 40 years. And it was only because of his relationship with Trump as his campaign manager and handing stuff off to the Russians mm -hmm. that brought him to the fore and lying about it. Accountability. We've got to use that phrase, accountability, over and over again. Now, we obviously know that when Trump does leave, finally, there will more than likely be a pretty violent white backlash from his followers and supporters. They're obviously, they've been, they've been saying there's going to be one since he came into office. You, as an expert on white rage, what, what can you tell people as to how, what to expect and, and possibly how to handle that backlash? And so this is where, you know, and I've said this in audiences before, when, when, when we were able to like really go outside, these are the conversations whites have to have with whites. Mm -hmm. These are the conversations where, you know, it's, it's like really laying it out. So it was like, well, they're going to take our guns. Point to that. If it was that easy, we would have done it already. Right? <laughs> so it's not that, right? What's going to happen is that you're going to get access to health care. Um, what's going to happen is that you're going to have clean drinking water. Right. What's going to happen is that you're, you're going to have good schools for your kids. Mm -hmm. And no, nobody's going to stop you from praying in school. Mm -hmm. The whole thing about the, the prayer in school was it took the state out of prayer in the school. So you don't get a mandated state prayer. But we've all been in schools before where students, right before a test, students are like, Lord, <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> so prayer has not been removed from the school. The state has been removed from prayer in the school. And that's good. <laughs> and that's good. So it is that conversation about what this means. Part of what Trump and his minions have done, and it's been nurtured over as you know, decades, mm -hmm. is, is this, this sense of the loss of, 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 of whiteness, the loss mm -hmm. of white resources, the loss of, 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 of whites in power, the loss. Mm -hmm. And so it's been treated as a loss. But let's look at it this way. We had a war on drugs where the U.S. spent about a trillion dollars, that's what a T, that's, a, that's big money, to lock up most, those who do drugs the least. Mm -hmm. Imagine if we had had that trillion dollars being used for, say, job training. Imagine if we had used that trillion dollars for access to health care for everybody. Mm -hmm affordable health care. Imagine if we had used that trillion dollars to make college affordable for everybody. I mean, so when you start thinking about so much of the way that the nurturing of violence happens is by conjuring up uh, an apocalyptic world where everything is lost, everything that you value is lost. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation that must happen is that this isn't what you're losing. Look at what you're gaining. You're gaining all of the things that you were afraid of happening. In fact, you're gaining. Treating this system as a zero-sum game that the only way you can get will be at my expense 
has been what has nurtured this hatred, the white supremacy that leads into the violence because it's telling folks the only way you can protect yourself is with this gun. When you saw the, the armed white guys storm the Michigan <laughs> state legislature threatening to behead the governor, and I'm like, so you're going to shoot the coronavirus with your gun? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that ought to work. Um, when, you, when you saw them storm the Idaho uh, state legislature, again, breaking down the doors, <laughs> sitting maskless in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, that ought to work. <laughs> that ought to work. So it is... It is so much of the inculcation into white supremacy is to one, do a kind of false elevation of whiteness mm -hmm. and then make that elevation be afraid of everything. Mm -hmm. To absolutely be in fear of everything. It's a, it's a straw man, essentially. This is the white supremacist playbook from, from back in the times of slavery as you've written about yourself, and you bring it up again in Reconstruction under Andrew Johnson and, and the, the Klan to stamp out any kind of, of class or labor solidarity between lower class and working class folks. And I think one of the, the positive things is we saw Stacey Abrams go down to these you know rural areas in white Georgia or in northern Georgia, and she presented you know the political arena like that and ended up getting you know, white people in these rural areas to vote for a black woman, you know, that some of these people probably could have never imagined something like that happen. When she presented it in the way that you just said, it made sense. And I think we have to really bring that back into knowing that, that one of the main reasons that, that these oligarchs defund education and you know, are anti-science and anti-fact and tell you not to believe what you see or hear is so that they can manipulate this racism. Here we are in Georgia right now. And in 2020 alone, we've had, we're going to have two rural hospitals shut down mm -hmm. in 2020 alone. Mm -hmm. um, and so since, what, 2015 or so? 2012, somewhere in there, we've had 10% mm -hmm. of all rural hospitals shut down. The state has refused to expand Medicaid mm -hmm. that would provide the funding that, I mean, so now you're asking people who are in, we got 159 counties mm -hmm. <laughs> and we're asking folks to come in from these counties to the, to, to like Atlanta, right? Where there's hundreds of miles. Yeah. Yes. The structure of white supremacy destroys white folk, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. as it destroys black folk, it destroys Latinos, it destroys Asian Americans. White supremacy is destructive. And that's what we have to understand. And that's the conversation mm -hmm. we must have. I, I like how Dr. Ibram puts it that it really, it's a cancer. You know, it eats, it eats up everything, it spreads and it, and it keeps, it eats its host alive. Yes, yes, it does. I mean, it is so weakening. I mean, so, I, you know, and I have described it in a, a piece in The Guardian. I said, white supremacy is the most destructive drug in America. Mm -hmm. Folks get a hit of it and it makes them feel strong. It makes them feel powerful. But anybody who has dealt with addiction anywhere near their mm -hmm. lives, they know that addicts feel empowered. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, everything around them is being destroyed. 
as their bodies and their health is being destroyed as well. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to sacrifice their God, their country, their family for another hit. God, this this is, I could talk to you all day. Um, I, I, I so appreciate you being here. I'm going to wind this down a little bit. People have now gotten a wonderful education from you today for free, essentially. Since you're so graciously donating your time, I wanted to ask if there was a certain cause or causes or charities that are um, near and dear to your heart that you support that you might want to tell our, our listeners and viewers to, to go and check out. And, you know, if they can't donate money, then possibly time. I love um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I, I, I love the work that the ACLU is doing. These folks are in there fighting for this democracy. I'm talking about doing some heavy lifting mm -hmm. uh, of taking on these voter suppressors and putting them on record about why they have done what they have done. These lies cannot withstand the light of day. I love the work that Fair Fight for Action is doing in registering folks to vote and empowering communities to, to hear and shape their political voices. I love the work that the Native American Rights Fund is doing and that Voto Latino is doing. I mean, you're hearing a kind of uh, the Vote Riders is doing, where, you know, Vote Riders, you know, isn't asking the question about voter ID. They're like, we are going to do the work to see that people can get the ID they need to vote. Mm -hmm. So I love the folks who are coming in from all of these different angles, from registering folks to vote, to fighting in the courts against voter suppression, to getting the people the, the materials that they need in order to be able to vote, uh, to empowering communities. And it's not to say that the vote is alpha and omega. Mm -hmm. But it is such a key, key, essential component in the way that we make this democracy vibrant and responsive. Mm -hmm. And that is why we're seeing all of these efforts on voter suppression, because it is to shut down and lock out those voices so that they do not have to be heard nor responded to. Yeah. I love it. It's just uh, almost pieces of a strategic puzzle that you're putting together to just take you from like stopgap measures to all the way to, to the John Lewis Act or, you know, I mean, yes. we're going to get there soon somehow. Yes. One final question. And I know this is kind of personal, but if you could offer one piece of advice uh, to Americans or people living in America about how to try to heal from some of our past psychological wounds and move forward together. What would that be? What we're going to need to do to be able to heal is we have to tell the truth. The truth is absolutely essential. I mean, this is why you see the, the push against talking about the 1619 project coming out of, of the White House. Um, this is why you see uh, um, this 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 removal of critical race theory uh, coming out again out of the White House. Because if you begin to tell the truth, we're having a very different kind of conversation about this incredible nation. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I wrote White Rage is because I'm sitting there, I'm watching Ferguson burn after the killing of Michael Brown by, by um, Officer Darren Wilson. And I'm hearing the pundits all talk about all of this black rage. So because what they were really talking about was a narrative of black pathology mm -hmm. that, you know, look at black folks burning up where they live. And I lived in Missouri for 
uh, 12, 13 years, I saw the way that public policy systematically undermines African-Americans' access to their citizenship rights. Mm -hmm. Because we were so focused in on the flames, we missed the kindling. Mm -hmm. And it's that kindling, those policies that we need to understand and that we need to tell the truth about. So we tell a narrative, for instance, that after the Brown decision in 1954, schools were equal. So if Black children aren't doing well in schools, it's simply because ah, they don't want to, they can't, they don't know how to, they, their communities don't value education. Mm -hmm. So those are the lies we tell. When we tell the truth about Brown, we see massive resistance. We see public school systems shut down for years where state legislatures will provide funding for white children to go to all white private academies and that there will be nothing available for black children for years. When we're telling that truth, which is the historical truth, you look at the documents, you look at the legislation, then we're telling a very different story about education and access to quality education in the United States of America. And on every one of those fronts, from housing to healthcare, when we tell the truth, then we move forward. Imagine being in a relationship and it's a rocky, <laughs> it's not quite working. <laughs> Then you go and you start telling each other the truth about what happened. Then you're having a real conversation about where you are and how you move forward. If you don't have that truth, you're moving forward based on a lie. And it means that it's going to continue to be rocky. Truth telling is absolutely essential. Just brilliant, brilliant words. I thank you, Dr. Anderson, so much for your wisdom. I thank you for your time. Highly in demand right now. So thank you. I will link to all those organizations so people can donate or donate their time and really start fighting for voting rights uh, again. So thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Go ahead and hit subscribe to Meritocracy and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.